paying too much for health insurance? Frustrated by high deductibles, network restrictions, and increasing premiums? There's a better way. Christian Healthcare Ministries. CHM is a Christian community delivering a robust, faith based solution to the high cost of healthcare. If your current health insurance has become more of a racket than a remedy, take back control of your healthcare at around half the price. Learn more and enroll today at chministries.org. That's chministries.org. I'm Sean Duffy. I'm Janice Dean. I'm Tom Shalou. And this is the Fox News Rundown. Thursday, February 1st, 2024, I'm Jessica Rosenthal. What is it going to take to stop abuse, cyberbullying, and sexual exploitation of American children on social media? Lawmakers may be at a breaking point as some big tech CEOs push back. They want to continue as if it's the Wild West. So they unleash their armies of lobbyists and lawyers to fight us on this. We speak with Tennessee Republican Senator Marsha Blackburn. I'm Dave Anthony. It's an already simmering issue that got Mark Cuban in some hot water. The push for diversity, equity, and inclusion in the workplace. If you take race or sex or another protected characteristic uh, in whole or in part, if that motivates your decision, you've broken the law as a general rule. And I'm former Secretary of Energy, Rick Perry. I've got the final word on the Fox News rundown. The Senate Judiciary Committee members on both sides of the aisle were angry over the exploitation of children on social media at yet another hearing on big tech. South Carolina Senator Lindsey Graham got applause from parents during the hearing after insisting that social media companies lose their liability protection once and for all after multiple parents showed up to watch. The representative from South Carolina, Mr. Guffey's son, uh, got caught up in a sex extortion ring in Nigeria using Instagram, he was um, shaken down, paid money, that wasn't enough, and he killed himself. What would you like to say to him? It's terrible. I mean, no one should have to go through something like that. You think he should be allowed to sue you? After a long pause there, Meta CEO Mark Zuckerberg said he can sue them, to which Graham replied, no, he cannot. Graham also noted five bills addressing social media concerns have failed. Delaware Democratic Senator Chris Coons highlighted one bill that has bipartisan support, and he asked the five CEOs of Discord, Meta, X, formerly Twitter, Snapchat, and TikTok. Is there any one of you willing to say now that you support this bill? Mr. Chairman, let the record reflect a yawning silence from the leaders of the social media platforms. Missouri Republican Senator Josh Hawley clarified that Zuckerberg said in his opening remarks that studies have not shown a causal link between social media and negative teen mental health. Here's a quote from your own study. Quote, we make body image issues worse for one in three teen girls. Here's another quote. Teens blamed Instagram. This is your study for increases in the rate of anxiety and depression. He then prompted Zuckerberg to address the parents seated in the rows behind him. Zuckerberg said he was sorry for everything they've gone through and that this is why they invest so much and will continue doing industry-leading efforts. To, uh, to make sure that no one has to go through the types of things that your families have had to suffer. So what are lawmakers doing now, aside from holding yet another hearing? Senator Blumenthal and I have worked on this Kids Online Safety Act for years. 
We speak with Tennessee Republican Senator Marsha Blackburn. And it is different this time. I think the activism of the parents and their advocacy and their stories, telling people the reason that you have to be able to protect kids online and that this is the duty of these social media platforms. See, they're scooping up all the data mm-hmm. and they want people online a lot. And to protect children, you have to be able to put some legislation and some guardrails in place, and they keep fighting it. It is it is striking that there is so much bipartisan support. Like, we don't see bipartisan support like this on anything. Um, and, and yet, we, we still haven't gotten there. What What is the, the holdup in your mind, specifically? And, yeah. you know, Lindsey Graham mentioned that there are like five bills out there. Do, like, where, where do we go now? Yes, indeed. We have several bills that are there. Senator Ossoff and I did the Report Act, which would, uh, this is something Nick Mick wanted so that they could hold information longer. And uh, we also have the Earn It Act which means to get liability protections, you would have to, a a platform would have to earn it. They would not have those Section 230 provisions and protections automatically given to them. And one of the things that we have found through the years is that these social media companies have a lot of money, thereby they have a lot of lawyers and lobbyists. They do Mm -hmm. not want regulation. They want to continue as if it's the Wild West. So they unleash their armies of lobbyists and lawyers to fight us on this. But here's what people are beginning to realize. If you were a liquor store owner and sold alcohol to minors, you would be charged. You would have your store locked. They would put you in handcuffs. They would take you off. Same thing if you were selling tobacco to kids that are underage. Same thing if you were a strip club owner that had kids coming in. That's how you would be treated because physical world enforces those laws. But in the virtual space, you have these platforms that have become a haven for drug dealers and sex traffickers that spew out self-harm, allow cyberbullying, and encourage suicide, and nothing is done to them. And for these CEOs to act like this is a new revelation to them, that their their uh, platforms are being used for adverse activity, for them to say, well, we're going to do better, or to say, well, we're trying to catch this. Well, that's not good enough because kids are losing their lives. The mental health of our nation's youth is the worst it has ever been. You saw the depression rates double from 2010 to 2019. And the commonality in all of this with the increase in drug use, with the increase in sex trafficking, with the increase in mental health and depression issues, with the increase in suicide, the commonality, social media. Yeah, you referenced in that answer, um, uh, NICMEC, the, that's the National Center for Missing and Exploited Children. But that was part of that was what you just talked about was going to be my follow-up question um, because I wanted your reaction to what you heard from these CEOs. It did seem like this hearing really did zero in on Mark Zuckerberg, and he'd said in his opening statement that there's no, 
there's no causal link um, right between social media use and negative mental health among teens. What did you make of what you heard at this hearing from the CEOs? He should have asked his staff for the documentation that made that point. Because if you read the Surgeon General's report, if you talk to psychologists and psychiatrists who are working with children, if you talk to principals, they will tell you most of the behavioral issues in their schools that they're dealing with are spurred on and fed by social media. I, I thought that that was uh, interesting. And the fact that the audience actually laughed at his saying that should yeah. have told him everything he needed to know. He had been given bad info on that one. You've been at this for years, as we've already referenced. You've talked to a lot of parents, um, heard from a lot of parents. Can you highlight for us what sticks with you when you address this issue? Is there any one particular story, any one particular anecdote that you would want people to know that you think frames this issue? We have worked with so many parents that have lost their children, and these are good kids. And uh, we have talked to parents whose child tried a TikTok challenge, and the challenge went wrong, and they died. We have talked to parents whose children thought they were talking with a friend, and it ended up being a sextortion scheme, and they lost them. And they uh, children that have tried suicide because they thought they were being extorted. And these are far too common. But the thing that really sticks with me is how these parents will reach out. They are desperate to help save other children because they have lived through a nightmare and they wish they had known how deadly it was to allow these kids to have social media and allow them to be on these platforms and they want to see something done so that children can be saved. It did sound like there were two tracks really, one on um, taking away social media companies' liability um, protections under Section 230, and then this other track of the multiple bills that, that we've referenced, right? It, do, do these need to be done at the same time, together, piecemeal? Does do the liliability protections, do those need to go away? Would that address many of the other well, concerns? That would give, too? Like what needs that to would happen? Give an avenue, yeah, it would give an avenue of recourse for people who have lost their children or their children have been harmed. And we have the five bills that have already come out of Judiciary Committee, and these are completely bipartisan. They came through on a unanimous vote. They are ready for a floor vote. Senator Schumer needs to put these on the floor, and then we need to get them across to the House so that the House can go ahead and mm -hmm. pass these. And dealing with uh, the Report Act, the Kids Online Safety Act, or COSA, uh, the Earn It Act, the CSAM Protection Act, these pieces of legislation have been worked carefully with members and with organizations. It's like with COSA, we have nearly half the Senate and over 200 organizations that support passage of that bill. Okay, finally, Senator, 
um, again, to Mark Zuckerberg's commentary, he seems pretty in, intent on telling everybody that they their focus is on giving parents the right controls. Like 50 more tools have been unveiled for parents to control. And then Senator Klobuchar said, wait, parents, this is too much for them. Like the, the, it can't just be on the parents. But, you know, uh, actress Jennifer Garner has said, has told her own children, show me a study that says social media is good for you and I'll let you have it. How how much is on us as parents to regulate our children's use of social media? How much is this our responsibility? We want the, the social media platforms to do is design for safety. That is what they should be doing. It should be safety by default. Open these algorithms, these black boxes, and then let the parents and kids set those so that they can control what is coming into them when they log onto these apps. And this is something that our legislation would do. It is what parents want to see done. And of course, anything that would would restrict or change the business model that these platforms are operating under, they are opposed to. That is why they continue to unleash their armies of lobbyists and lawyers to fight us on this legislation. Tennessee Republican Senator Marsha Blackburn, thank you so much for joining. Good to join you. Thank you. I'm Dana Perino. Join me for my brand new podcast, Perino on Politics. As we analyze the 2024 election cycle, make sure you subscribe to this series on foxnewspodcast.com or wherever you download podcasts and leave me a rating and review. This is former Secretary of Energy and Texas Governor Rick Perry with your Fox News commentary coming up. When is DEI not okay? Ask the EEOC. Something Mark Cuban did not do. When the famed billionaire entrepreneur and investor on TV Shark Tank got caught up in controversy online the other day during a Q&A on X, when Cuban wrote, though he does not hire anyone exclusively based on race or gender, he will use those as factors in the decision if it puts his business in the best position to succeed, prompting a response from the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission that he's dead wrong. Amid controversy in corporate America over DEI policies, diversity, equity, and inclusion, his fellow Shark Tank investor, Kevin O'Leary, known as Mr. Wonderful, tells Fox, I think the answer to this, as we start to see this narrative bubble up, is let the market be the market and stop regulating small business. They know how to solve for themselves. But when it comes to what Mark Cuban said about race and gender being factors, the law is clear. Well, there's one primary mistake that he made, but then there's a second underlying one. Andrea Lucas is one of five commissioners on the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission, a Republican appointee in 2020. The first key mistake is that I think a common misunderstanding uh, that he exhibits and, and many other people have is that it's OK to take into consideration race or sex as long as it's not the only reason or the deciding factor in decision. That's not the law. If you take race or sex or another protected characteristic 
uh, in whole or in part, if that motivates your decision, you've broken the law as a general rule. And then the more fundamental misunderstanding that I think uh, is reflected in popular discussion, like his tweets, is that there's some form of good race discrimination, that as long as you're doing it for the quote unquote right reasons or to benefit the right groups, that that discrimination is either morally right or legally right. That also is dead wrong. Let's break it down by letter in this. Let's start with diversity. What is it that, what is the aim when it comes to that element of it? If if you can't take some of these factors in legally when you're hiring, how does diversity get involved in the way that people want? Diversity means like the English language term and what people who are proponents of DEI mean may vary. Same thing for equity and for inclusion. Um, Taken the best way, diversity would mean that you simply want to have a whole range of individuals um, in every way that makes a person individual. Um, and you want to make those people feel uh, welcome and, and eliminate barriers. That all sounds great. Um, Unfortunately, diversity sometimes is code for I only want certain groups of people in my business or I want to increase certain racial or other demographic groups. That's where it starts to go off the rails. Okay. Now, equity is a term that has gotten a lot of popularity in the last decade or more here. But a lot of people seem to put it on the same level as equality. What is equity? Many people think, oh, equity, equality, same thing. It's not. And that's why the term has come into uh, in, into popular use, right? If we meant equality, we wouldn't be using the word equity. Equity is used by uh, advocates of this term to promote that you're going to all reach the same outcome. Equality is about whether or not you're treating people the same. Are you treating a similar situated individual the same way, applying the same rules to everyone? Equity seeks to make sure that you treat people differently in order to ensure that everyone reaches the exact same outcome. Um, Equity is not what's required under our civil rights laws. Again, you know, it's good that you spelled out what the EEOC stands for, right? It's not the Equitable Employment Outcomes Commission. It's the Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. There's a big difference between that. Inclusion. What is the aim there? I mean, obviously, everyone, nobody in this day and age seems to want anybody to be excluded for any particular reason. But how does inclusion work in, in the DEI formula? Inclusion typically is the lowest risk area of the DEI bucket. And I'd say diversity also generally uh, initiatives are solely focused on diversity. So perhaps you're going to be doing a training, generally helping people be aware of cultural differences or celebrating a particular holiday or uh, that a particular uh, group might uh, have more focus on. Generally low risk. Same thing for inclusion. uh, You may see similar types of programming like that cultural awareness. They can be done right. Uh, It depends on how they're executed. Uh, It's being thoughtful about uh, whether or not you are are doing something that might end up causing a barrier to someone based on whether or not you have a welcoming workplace. There's a lot of ways that that can be fine. Um, The problem is if inclusion starts turning into exclusion, um, 
if you're not actually including people, then it, it's not inclusion anymore. Um, so it, again, it's really going to depend on how things are broken down. Uh, equity in the DEI focus is, is really the linchpin of the problem because the equity types of programming that we see in DEI programming are often ones where, again, you have an explicit race or sex uh, limitation in a program, in a policy, in a um, an employment opportunity, or you are setting race or sex goals and is strongly incentivizing uh, your managers to make race or sex motivated decision making. That's really the crux of, I think, uh, critics of DEI, their concerns is the E. Now, for many listening who work in corporate America, they may have had to undergo some sort of a workplace seminar or workplace training that focuses on some of these very things. You at the EEOC, does that lead to issues or are you only focused on the hiring elements? The EEOC uh, uh, addresses and Title VII addresses every step of the employment life cycle from recruitment to programming that happens once you're a current employee to promotion, hiring, firing, demotion, employment opportunities, and whether or not you stay in your job if you're fired or let go. So from the very beginning to the end, uh, that's covered by their civil rights protections. And that includes things like uh, workplace trainings. Okay. All right. But some people have felt like some of these trainings are somewhat designed to I suppose, enlighten some people who are, say, white or straight of things that they have biases they might not even know that they have to sort of train them to lose those biases. Are there issues with any of that? It's really going to turn on what the specific content of the training is. You can't necessarily say that a particular category of training will be per se unlawful. But if you do have a training whose content uh, is includes racial stereotypes, uh, racial slurs, uh, is designed to be antagonistic. I mean, all of those things can form evidence of discrimination. You know, the really unfortunate example of this that's pretty widespread uh, that many people are aware of is the classic uh, bad Coke training in which uh, one of the slides said, try to be less white. Um you can't do that. That's absolutely going to contribute to liability if you're if you're saying something like that. Some Republican-led states have passed laws restricting DEI. Utah Governor Spencer Cox signed off on one Tuesday prohibiting diversity training and hiring and inclusion programs in universities and in state government. The law also bans requirements for employees to submit statements committing to DEI. Governor Cox says forcing that on workers is awful, bordering on evil. This is Democrats in nine states push legislation to do the opposite, to either promote or require diversity, equity, and inclusion initiatives. One of the key things to remember is Title VII already covers a lot of, of restrictions on that kind of content. Again, if, if you have training that exhibits racial bias towards white employees or Asian employees or or employees of any race, um, that's already problematic and potentially unlawful, depending on the fact pattern at issue, um, regardless of whether or not an additional law is signed. All right. There was a report from a consulting firm, Paradigm, that said last year undeniably had a shift in DEI landscape. And part of that might be from the Supreme Court ruling last year on affirmative action 
being uh, not permissible when it came to college admissions. Is there a Supreme Court case, do you think, that could be coming with DEI in the workplace also? Well, that's great that you uh, bring that up. So the current case, Muldrow versus City of St. Louis, is pending for the Supreme Court right now. Oral arguments were heard in December, and a decision is expected probably near the end of the term, either the end of May or possibly June. And it could be one of the biggest employment cases uh, of the century. Um, it's set to re-examine uh, the scope of Title VII and what kinds of actions are covered. Okay. Um, following a groundswell of, of case law development in, the, in that space. Um, and it... Uh, it's widely expected to really open up uh, or reaffirm that a host of employment actions um, are subject to the protections of Title VII, which could have clear implications for all kinds of employment claims, but also DEI-related claims. Okay, so a court ruling would affirm the law now or could upend Title VII? If the court rules that Title VII applies to all terms, conditions, and privileges of employment, which is, is the text of Title VII right now. And it does not require a material or tangible harm in order to show that. So it's broad, it, It's affirming that Title VII applies to things broader than just hiring, firing, demotion, promotion, and compensation decisions. Then it will overturn 50% of the appellate courts. But I will note that the EEOC and the DOJ uh, so it's the Department of Justice, uh, both in the Trump and Biden administration. So it's a bipartisan push. Take the broad view of Title VII. And I, I, I think it is extremely likely that the Supreme Court will affirm that position. For people who don't know the EEOC, for all federal laws that would be employment related, your job is to enforce them. Yes. So Title VII is going to cover race, religion, color, sex, national origin. And then we also have disability uh, under the ADA. Well, we recently uh, have the Pregnant Workers Fairness Act. Um, Gina's is genetic. So you know, a variety, but the classic ones that people are thinking about is race and sex discrimination. So when it comes to DEI, the Supreme Court ruling later this year might be a big one. Yes. Keep your eyes out for that. Andrea Lucas, one of the commissioners on the U.S. Equal Employment Opportunity Commission. Thank you very much for joining us. Thank you. Meet the American who... Created the chairlift. James Michael Curran was born on June 9th, 1903 in Omaha, Nebraska. He was the sixth child among seven. The budding innovator passed Nebraska's licensed engineer exam with only a high school education. Curran used his knowledge to work for Paxton Veerling Steel, and one of his very first jobs was designing an aerial conveyor system, hauling a continuous flow of bananas from loading docks to fruit boats in Honduras. The technology would later change the winter sports industry forever. Union Pacific Chairman W. Avril Harriman purchased mountain land around Ketchum, Idaho. The business mogul was determined to diversify his company's assets and boost rail travel. Curran started work at Union Pacific in 1927 and tasked with lifting skiers 2,000 feet above the valley floor. He remembered his previous experience hauling bananas and used the technology to adapt it for snow. He tested the first prototype by attaching a chair to the side of a truck and scooping people with skis on top of roller skates onto city streets. Curran's design worked brilliantly. Union Pacific Sun Valley Ski Resort quickly became a hotspot for winter getaways. Celebrities, politicians, and competitive athletes alike all flocked to catch him for the chair 
lift. James Curran died February 12, 1968 in Omaha at 64 years old. Although his designs revolutionized skiing, Curran never once tried the sport. However, in 2001, he was inducted into the Ski Snowboard Hall of Fame. I'm Benjamin Hall, Fox News correspondent and New York Times bestselling author. Join me for my brand new podcast, Searching for Heroes. Make sure you subscribe to this series wherever you download podcasts and leave a rating and review. Subscribe to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. It's time for your Fox News commentary. Rick Perry. What's on your mind? In the shadows of American climate activism, a web of foreign interest is quietly pulling the strings in the background to undermine U.S. energy security. As the Biden administration continues to advance policies harmful to domestic energy production, it's important to understand the growing influence of foreign entities shaping our climate policy and how our adversaries are working to undermine America's energy security and economic stability. Recent revelations have exposed a concerning reality. A group tied to the Chinese Communist Party is pouring substantial funds into American climate advocacy groups and nonprofits. They're aiming to lead the charge toward an all-electric future and the electrification of our transportation sector. Ironically, While environmentalists claim to want to lower global emissions, this misguided action will do the exact opposite by ensuring a rise in coal use and LNG from Russia, both of which will raise global emissions. From a national security standpoint, the Biden administration is sending contradictory signals while asking Congress to support aid for Ukraine, but at the same time, empowering Putin by restoring his ability to use energy as a weapon. The world witnessed the severe consequences of Europe's dependence on Russian energy when Russia invaded Ukraine in 2022. Without oil and gas exports from allies like the United States, Europe faced a stark choice between inadequate heating for its citizens or buying Russian gas that funds Putin's war. China is trying to adopt the same strategy here in the United States. It's no coincidence that China is funding groups advocating for electric vehicles as three major Chinese electric car companies expand their operations and establish new factories in Mexico. Persistent global demand for oil and gas, it remains indisputable. It's acknowledged by President Joe Biden even in his last State of the Union address. Our reliance on oil and gas spans across critical sectors, hospitals, schools, transportation, technology, and even government. Unfortunately, the Biden administration refuses to acknowledge the importance of strong domestic energy production to U.S. national security and is playing into our adversaries' hands by prioritizing appeasement of environmentalist groups, even those backed by China over the long-term strength and security of our nation. Furthermore, the administration's stringent restrictions on offshore U.S. oil drilling, as seen with the Department of Interior's smallest offshore lease sale in history last year, that signals a broader assault on fossil fuels. These policies are not only jeopardizing American jobs and economic prosperity, 
but also challenging our energy self-sufficiency. It's imperative to reverse these actions and return to the path of energy independence. Our focus must shift towards domestic oil and gas production, characterized by the world's strictest environmental standards to bolster energy security, support the American workforce, and stimulate economic growth. This is Rick Perry, the former governor of Texas and former secretary of energy. You've been listening to the Fox News Rundown. And now stay up to date by subscribing to this podcast at foxnewspodcasts.com. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts Plus on Apple Podcasts. And Prime members can listen to the show ad-free on Amazon Music. And for up-to-the-minute news, go to foxnews.com. 